You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. I have nearly always been doing the kind of investigation that is out to prove a point. It comes from a place of, we can see there is something wrong with this system. We are going to gather evidence to show that this particular bit of it isn't working. Just as, you know, there are some people who who have got a sort of completist attitude towards getting all of the data there. There are some people who... They are most familiar in an environment where there's something to be cross about. I am not doing investigation as my job at the moment. So some of my perspectives on this are based on having reflected on what I was doing when I was doing that. I'm Anthea Lawson. I'm a writer, an author and campaigner. I started out as a journalist. I trained and worked as a reporter at The Times. And I did that for not very long, really, just a few years. And then I switched to working for campaign groups, human rights and environmental campaign groups mostly, using my journalism skills to do investigations for them and present our findings for, for the purpose of campaigning to try and get legal change, to fight and argue for new laws, um, new treaties. More recently, I've just written a book about activism, about how we try and get change, called The Entangled Activist, in which I've talked to a lot of other activists about, and campaigners and investigators about some of the questions I had about what I was doing. There was a sort of instinctive feeling that I was interested in journalism during my teens. It wasn't a particularly sort of crusading feeling, which it sort of became later. I was backpacking after I finished university. I'd studied history. And, and I found myself talking to people and just asking them things and being really interested in asking people about their lives and how things were for them and the way I was writing things in my diary, you know, just observations and impressions. It sort of became clear at that point that I really enjoyed that process. I wasn't thinking of it as investigation at the time. I was more thinking of it as reporting. And then after I'd started working as a journalist, I was becoming frustrated with sort of being yoked to the daily news cycle. And of course, it's, you know, it's part of what journalists have to do. It's part of what news reporters have to do on newspapers. You know, you, you just get phoned up by the news desk and sent off to whatever is happening. And I was the lowest of the low. I'd started as a graduate trainee at the Times, and so I was just in the pool of reporters. I hadn't yet got myself a specialism or anything. And so I would just be sent off on whatever was happening. 
there just wasn't time to think. I think there are, and I'm not sure it was the best use of best use of me. And I'm not sure I was brilliant at it. I was probably competent because it was just about getting there first and about being sort of most aggressive sometimes in sort of pushing your way to the front and finding the person to ask the questions. And that's when I started thinking about investigation because that's where you actually dig below the surface of things and you're not just in thrall to what the system has decided is the agenda, you know, which is what's going on in government that day. Who said what stupid thing? What's going on in the courts? Who's crashed into who? All of that. I wanted to get below the surface. What I was starting to realise was that this, uh, this thing that I had thought I wanted to do, I didn't want to do that aspect of it. Fate intervened here. I didn't sort of move to doing something else in a smooth way. I burnt out with chronic fatigue. And so in the year of not working that then ensued, because I couldn't work, that's when I really started thinking. In the late 90s, the anti-globe, the, the big sort of campaigning sort of movement, a sort of movement of movements really, it was happening in lots of places, was the anti-globalisation protests, which had been happening in the majority world for a while and were starting to sort of make their way into the, the places of power. There was, you know, there were great big protests outside the World Trade Organisation in Seattle. There were anti-globalisation protests in London and, you know, they, they were happening in big cities. And I was out on these marches and I was trying to report on them as well. Um, and I was feeling really torn because I was sort of seeing things on sort of early sort of web chats about sort of things that were being planned. And I was feeling really sort of conflicted. I sort of, I was starting to realize I didn't just want to report on things. I also want, sort of wanted to be part of them. I, I didn't really think that sort of organizing big marches was going to be my thing. but. I was really starting to feel this pull towards things that I was never going to be able to get into a Murdoch newspaper. And that's when I realised that I could perhaps take those skills to sort of professional campaign groups. And, and it was practical. Obviously, I wanted to earn a living as well. And there might be a way of bringing the two things together. You know, I grew up in an environment where, you know, my parents were quite sort of conservative, small C and voting big C. Those sort of organisations weren't in my sort of realm. I didn't know they existed. And actually, they were they were changing around that time. It was it was in the 90s that they were really sort of becoming solidified protests that had taken place in quite scrappy ways before that was starting to kind of coalesce into these bigger sort of funded organisations. What I was noticing was that they were structured, most of them, around sort of research and investigation functions, so people who dug stuff up, and then communications functions and uh, campaign functions, which is the people who took those findings and those reports and then went out to whatever community or movement or, or whatever it was, the people they had available to them, their supporters, to get them to do stuff. And so when it works, and you can do that smoothly, and you can find the stuff and communicate it well, 
and then go out there and be the ones sort of speaking about it. There was a sort of flow to that process that at the time felt very, very satisfying. I went and lived in Sierra Leone for a while in the aftermath of the Civil War. And I was sort of doing a mixture of experimenting with whether I wanted to be a sort of traditional aid worker, I suppose. I was working for a child protection organisation, supporting children who'd been separated from their families during the conflict. But I was also doing some research for some of the campaigns I'd been working on back in London that were about trying to get controls on the arms trade. I wanted to be useful. I wanted to help. But it was also about me. It was also about me feeling good, being the one who could make that happen. You know, that feeling of righteousness, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very big motor for campaigning and activism of all kinds. And it's not obvious that a lot of campaigning would take place without it. And yet it is also such a problem. I was absolutely on my high horse. And, I, and, and you know, I'm talking in the past tense because I'm speaking about that particular bit of work 15 years ago, but it's the, same, it's the same now in other campaigning environments. It's very hard to do campaigning without getting on your high horse, without um, seeing the problem only in the other side, because that observation of the problem is what sort of inspires us to, to say, right, yes, we're going to do something. Look, let's, let's go and get those bastards. Now, some things have changed since then. You know, this was before social media. You know, it's an epochal communications revolution. We haven't had anything this big as a revolution in communications for 500 years. And we haven't begun to see it fully playing out yet. So that was right at the tail end of uh, a world in which there were, probably was a role for the sort of intermediate, the journalist and investigator as intermediary. But I think the changed media and particularly social media landscape um, and smartphones and everybody having them has just upended um, those dynamics so completely, or it's upended the possibility um, of what can happen and who can speak for themselves so profoundly that I think all of these roles uh, of investigator and and journalist are are in question. And 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 all you know, all of that is alongside the fact that you know one of the negative sides of the this revolution is that anyone can say anything and and so i'm not saying there's no role for the trained the trained journalist as you know as interpreter and um you know that that sort of editorial the editorial and the the choice uh that you can have about what makes it through is such a power so it raises questions about that and it raises questions about the sort of the psychology of our of our own savior and status needs I was working at Global Witness, a campaigning organisation that investigates the links between natural resources and conflict and corruption. And I was running a campaign looking at the role of the financial sector, so banks, but also law firms, offshore tax havens, and the role they were playing in corrupt natural resource deals, in fueling corruption by the banks accepting stolen dictators' loot, money that had been stolen by corrupt, very... It's funny talking about corrupt politicians now because it's very obvious we've got our own. But politicians who were, you know, chopping large amounts of national budgets, you know, this is oil revenues being paid directly into 
sort of private accounts, that kind of thing. Um, and the banks were completely facilitating that because you cannot keep these kinds of these amounts of money under the mattress. I used to say, you know, you need a bank. So I was putting together these case studies and I published a report that was full of case studies of major banks, HSBC, Barclays, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. But then we sort of published these reports. I say that just in one sentence. It took two years and much hair pulling and many arguments with the libel lawyer to be able to say this stuff without ending up in court, where we could say very clearly, these banks are fueling corruption and this is how. And then I talked my way into a meeting at the OECD, which is like the rich countries club that sets trade and sort of finance rules. And they set the sort of template for the anti-money laundering laws that ought to prevent all this happening. And so there I am in this sort of big basement negotiating room in OECD headquarters in Paris. And there's a huge negotiating table, you know, tables all along one side and a big sort of square, about 15 people along each side. And I'm along one side near the chair. I've lobbied for two years to get into this room. And they, they're doing a sort of go-round to say who everyone is. And it's like, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm from HSBC, I'm so-and-so, I'm from Barclays, I'm so-and-so, I'm from the Society of Offshore Lawyers, or whatever it is. This room was the heart of darkness from the perspective of the work I'd been doing for several years. It was like, oh, my God, the, they're all here, all these institutions and organisations that I feel are directly responsible for this stuff and who I've been saying for several years, oh, my goodness, these are the bastards we must get. And here I am in the room with them. And, and it comes round to me, um, and the chair knew, you know, the chair sort of, you know, he was a government bureaucrat. And I sort of leant forward and he switched on my little microphone and said, hello, I'm Anthea Lawson. I'm from Global Witness. And I, I investigate the role of you, basically, in causing corruption and poverty and unnecessary death in the countries where you're operating. Because that's what this is. You know, they wanted to keep it on the sort of technical terms of corruption and whatever that might mean in the terms of the anti-money laundering laws. And I insisted throughout this meeting of making clear what corruption actually meant. It's mothers dying in childbirth um, and children dying for lack of clean water. The whole room kind of went, like, who, who the fuck let her in? I love that. I absolutely loved it. I loved being a huge pain in the arse for those people. It's like that's where the, you know, that's where that thing, you know, I like the power of it. Now, again, I've sort of reflected on this. I had really limited power. I had unbelievably limited power. But that was the amount that I'd managed to get in that situation. There's a, there's a righteousness in it and, and I think an underlying an underlying sort of feeling of doing something useful, which is hard to distinguish from saviorism, really. Now, in a sane world, the people directly affected, the, the citizens of countries directly affected by what banks are doing should be in that room. It shouldn't be me. You know, everyone who works in professional campaigning organisations recognises that the turnover is high. Campaigning fuels investigation, attracts passionate people, you know, who really care. They really give a shit. They hurl themselves into it and then they burn out. And, and some people do that cyclically, you know, and they step back and a bit quieter for a bit and then they come back at it. And some people just go off and do other stuff because they can't do it. 
Um, and we could just say, yeah, that's how it is. Also, though, I think that by questioning some of what we are bringing of ourselves to the process, I think we can change how we relate to it. Because I think the process is not going to change. We are always going to be up against something absolutely huge. And some people at some moments are very energised by that. Um, You know, I used to have people saying to me, but how can you even begin to take that on? It just feels so exhausting. And when I was in the thick of doing those jobs, I was like, it's fine. It's the only way to live. It's the only way I can't imagine living otherwise. You know, I'm now doing it in a part-time way. I'm doing more of my campaigning in my spare time because I'm doing more writing with my sort of working time. And I can see a bit more how people were saying that because when you're not right in the thick of it, it does, it does look absolutely enormous. So, so look, here it is. It's, there's this enormous sort of wall we're throwing ourselves at and let's not sort of get into (laughs) describing what we're going to call that system, whether it's neoliberalism or extractive capitalism or patriarchy. I think the thing that we can change is how we see ourselves in relation to it. If we think that it's us who are going to fix it, if we are attached to doing that ourselves, then I think we're going to be more likely to burn out. In all these ways, we're going to be bringing a sort of unconscious uh, load. Well, it's baggage, really, isn't it? In the term that we all understand it by. We're going to be bringing all that to it. And then in the inevitable moment when it's not going well or we've been knocked back yet again, it's a bit devastating because it's not just that we haven't achieved this particular thing we were trying to achieve in that moment, you know, get so-and-so minister to meet us or listen to us or change this law or whatever, which is bad enough in itself because this stuff matters. It's that all this kind of subterranean sort of haul of stuff we're bringing with us. Um, hasn't been met as well. And some of the most uh, liberating conversations I had with long-standing activists, I mean, people who'd been managing to do it for decades, uh, were the ones where I realised that the people who managed to really keep going are doing their campaigning as a practice and not so much as a goal. And of course, to say this is not saying we shouldn't have goals. You know, I I get very frustrated when I see campaigning that's being done, you know, without sort of clearly thinking through, well, who is it we're trying to target? You know, you can waste waste your time so very easily uh, by not sufficiently targeting things, by not getting your message clear, by not being clear what you think you want to do. And yet at the same time as needing that clarity, there's a quality of, of attachment to our goal that I think too much of that, of attaching ourselves and our sense of ourselves to that goal that makes the burnout much more likely. I'm now attempting to do the things that I'm doing with that sense of practice. And it's hard. I'm, I'm in my mid-40s and I've spent my entire life orienting myself uh, towards the successful achievement of targets. And when I say orienting myself, I don't just mean trying to get the targets. I mean my very being. That has been very important. So I worked on the campaign for an arms trade treaty, 
which was a big campaign run by Amnesty and Oxfam to uh, huh, we won the treaty and <laughs> its limitations are are clear because the UK is still selling weapons to uh, just for example uh, which are being used against civilians in Yemen but the idea was to prevent sales of weapons by governments to other governments who will use them against civilians you know there were academics who were looking they were measuring gun flows across borders they were looking at the market the dynamics of the market there were people who who appeared on the surface and i i really think i was quite judgmental at the time a lot of us were to be motivated by the numbers and by the data and sometimes to be quite interested in the weapons system really sort of quite motivated by sort of knowing all of the differences in specifications between these different systems. I was horrified by all of these things. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't bear thinking about what these weapons did. I found it very hard doing this work. In the end, I had to step away because my dreams were so bad. And so I would sometimes notice there was a sort of a judgment sort of going on of the people who were sort of, who seemed to be able to carefully sort of delineate all of the sort of weapon specifications or or for academic purposes you know do research on you know just the numbers the absolute numbers and then sometimes the academics would be a bit sort of twitchy about the way that we were using some of their statistics in our press releases you know because we would take their care and I <laughs> I understand it now you know they we, we would take their very carefully thought through and nuanced findings and like bang them straight in what becomes a headline you know and you know what happens in the news process it just gets simplified and simplified and simplified and we were just part of that process you know and they would raise questions about that and I would be on this very sort of driven target focused we need x number of countries to agree you know this particular thing by this date before this meeting when the treaty is going to get discussed at the United Nations, whatever it was. So we need X number of newspaper headlines in those countries that we can then put in front of them. You know, we were really sort of working back from a target. It's like, well, of course we need a number. And it was easy sometimes to sort of observe that desire to get the data, you know, right just on its own account, sort of without a campaigning sort of edge, um, almost as a sort of some kind of moral lack you know, which is nonsense, really. I think all of these people who are doing it were obviously driven to do it by the same underlying set of goals of, of you know, understanding that the world needed changing. It's just there were those of us who were in different places in the sort of ecology of the system that was trying to confront it. You know, I'm a lot less judgmental of that now and perhaps rather more judgmental of how judgmental I was sometimes being at the time. I can't, you know, I thought that if people weren't as angry as me, they obviously cared less. And I think uh, I think anger at some of these issues does run through. There's a sort of seam of it in investigation, and I, I don't think it, I don't think that's ever going to change. I think I think the one thing that can change is that we can become more aware of it uh, and a bit sort of kinder to each other about where we're coming from. We make enormous assumptions about how what is obvious to us is going to land with other people. One of those assumptions is that people will want to act on it in the same way that we do. Another is that they will feel the same anger that we do and that it won't instead make them turn away um, because it's too uncomfortable. I'd been working on banks for a few years 
and you know, I'd been sort of taken on to try and look at the role of banks in fueling corruption. There was an already an overarching legal regime that was supposed to control how banks sort of deal with dirty money, to use the umbrella term, um, but it wasn't working. So there, there were laws in place, but they weren't working. And so that's always a kind of frustrating kind of campaign because then you sort of find yourself arguing for kind of, well, you've got to tighten up the laws. You find yourself arguing for these sort of carceral solutions, you know, lock up all the bankers. You know, it's, it's, it, it's a bit tricky because really what's behind it is the sort of underlying profit motive above all else. That's what's causing the problems. But there was another aspect, actually, that was just so, oh, not, yeah, in policy terms, it was being overlooked. The Tax Justice Network had been talking about it. Nobody else was talking about it. And this was this question of companies being able to incorporate and hide who their real owners were. So you could incorporate a company in Britain and say the owner of the company is another company that's incorporated in the British Virgin Islands. That's it. Nobody can find out who's behind it. You can do anything with that. You can be a dodgy landlord. You can commit any number of crimes uh, across borders and it will be very, very hard uh, to be held to account. And so the story that... uh, my colleague was working on that we sort of decided to sort of make a sort of play of this and really show it was it was about capital flight out of Kyrgyzstan when there'd been a change of regime you know I I, I wasn't I'm not really I'm not a data nerd but here we had it was it was when you just sort of peer you open the Pandora's box and we found addresses in London where thousands of companies were being registered now you know books have now been written about this it's now a big thing but at the time this was in 20, yeah, 2010, 2011, we were probably doing the research on this. And, and it wasn't really being talked about. And I remember going to the British Library to use one of the databases they had there and seeing how many companies were being incorporated. There were thousands of companies incorporated in each of these things. And it takes both a kind of, a kind of handle on the data, but also a kind of journalistic storyteller's eye to see the implication of that. It was like a gateway into this absolute sort of world of horror of of what was possible in the incorporation of, of, of offshore companies. And so that report itself, I think it did have some impact in some unexpected sort of little places that, you know, you can't sort of paint as like, the, you know, the, the, the big picture of it. But what it did was sort of opened us up and made it clear that we were going to launch a big campaign. Um, it's, it's, it's like one of those little moments where, you know, a slice of story kind of well told, opens up a real sort of Pandora's box. So, you know, we then were able to use this. We were using this data we'd got. I remember sitting out on the, there was a roof terrace in that office. I remember having conversations with an editor at The, at the Economist. And I remember seeing his face when he got it, when he got what we were saying. And he was like, oh, right. Okay. You know, and then they did an editorial and then it, you know, Cameron's government picked it up and then sort of championed this this change and it was you know it was this thing that it was the granular detail that showed these structures that pervaded the whole system and and made it absolutely rotten to the core and and so it's that sort of that lovely combination of seeing the detail and then being able to do being able to do that it's not just storytelling it's writing up the story but it's also the communicating around it it's being able to sort of put that into into a form of words that shows its relevance and shows how that is then being used to facilitate the drugs trade and corruption and all the kind of offshore profit shifting, you know, and any number of other social ills. That's really satisfying.
I feel sort of mixed being asked to talk about it now because it's no longer my full-time job. Uh, when it was my full-time job, I was fully identified with it. And it felt like absolutely the, the best use of my skills and what I can bring to the world because I, I like and can do both the, both the finding stuff out um, and the communication of it um, in a way that lands with people. Part of me misses doing it full-time, actually, and I sometimes wonder if perhaps I'd like to go back to it, but I feel like I've, I'm motivated at the moment by a different kind of investigation. I suppose I am still an investigator in some ways, and what I'm investigating at the moment is not the, the practical manifestations of the system in you know, the arms trade or dodgy natural resources deals or tax havens, what I'm investigating now is the sort of deep links between our inner lives, our souls and our psychology, and how that manifests in the world that we're creating together. My sort of way of being in the world and the, the work that I want to do is always going to be investigation of a kind because I, asking questions is kind of how I'm built. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskandar, Laura Ranka, Marek Tyshinsky, and Christy Lang.